Podcastle, episode 440, for November 1st, 2016. The Jellyfish Collector, by Michelle Goldsmith, rated PG-13. Hello and welcome to Podcastle. I'm Aidan Doyle, your guest host for this episode. I'm an Australian writer, associate editor at Podcastle, and creator of Beefield Clowns. For the month of November, we're bringing you the shortlisted stories for 2015's Aurealis Award for Fantasy Short Fiction. The Aurealis Awards are Australia's premier genre awards and an excellent place to start if you're interested in discovering more great Australian fiction. All of 2015's Fantasy Short Fiction nominees were women, and in recent years, Australian women writers in particular have written many great stories. Margot Lanigan, Karen Warren, Anna Tambor, Angela Slater, and Lisa Hannett have all been nominated for World Fantasy Awards for their fiction. Generalising about a whole country's fiction is of course fraught with problems, but the landscape and environment is a common theme in Australian fiction. In today's story, the vastness of the ocean is mingled with the closeness of family relationships. Podcastle is very proud to present The Jellyfish Collector, written by Michelle Goldsmith. It was originally published in the Review of Australian Fiction in 2015. Michelle Goldsmith is a Melbourne-based author whose writing often inhabits the shady borderlands between genres. She has a Bachelor of Science majoring in Zoology Evolutionary Biology and a master's degree in publishing and communications, with a thesis exploring the author-reader relationship within the contemporary speculative fiction field. Her life science background and particular fondness for the stranger aspects of the natural world often inform her fiction. Her short fiction has appeared in various publications both within Australia and overseas, and been shortlisted for both the Aurealis Award and the Dittmar Award. She has also had works translated. You can find her online at michellegoldsmith.net and on Twitter at Villa Therrell. That's at V-I-L-U-T-H-E-R-I-L. Your reader today is Dawn Meredith. Dawn is an author for kids and YA in both fiction and non-fiction, as well as a singer-songwriter, specialist literacy teacher and artist. She's always wanted to do voiceovers and narration, and is excited to be a part of Podcastle. Dawn's debut fantasy novel is due out later this year. As a child, Dawn lived in England, Australia and Norway. She lives with her family in the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. And now it's time to meet the jellyfish. The Jellyfish Collector by Michelle Goldsmith Where do you think they keep their brains? Eva asks. They have to have one somewhere, don't they? She stands motionless beside her younger sister Fiona, the two of them staring past their own reflections and into the tank beyond. On the other side of the glass drift dozens of moon jellyfish, gently pulsating in the water as though dancing to imperceptible music. Don't know, says Fiona, squinting into the tank as if the jellies might be hiding their brains in some hidden corner. They hold her attention for a few seconds longer before her gaze begins to dart around the darkened room. 
Do you think they have a mermaid here? Fiona combs a hand through her long red-gold hair. Do you think I could be a mermaid? She doesn't even wait for Eva's answer before scurrying off. First one to spot a shark wins! Eva remains, mesmerised by the jellies, watching their transparent alien forms glow with the changing colours of the ultraviolet backlight. They are so beautiful, hypnotic. She leans closer, sure she can hear a slight humming, too musical to be the sound of an aquarium filter coming from behind the glass. A hand comes to rest on her shoulder and she looks up. Her father is standing beside her. Fascinating creatures, aren't they? He smiles. So strange and yet ancient. Did you know that creatures like these have been living in the oceans for hundreds of millions of years? Yet we still don't know that much about them. How they came to be? Why they swarm? He winks. Maybe one day you'll be the one to find out. Eva listens, rapt, as her father tells her more, keenly absorbing every skerrick of knowledge, collecting and storing them like shells combed from a beach. She wants to know everything about the jellies and their world. Eventually they move on to the next display, where a large jar of yellowish fluid contains a preserved box jellyfish. Eva's father reads aloud, traditionally thought to lack a conventional brain and therefore complex behaviour, the box jellyfish, Chironex fleckeri, has been found to possess a specialised eye and has proven adept at visually oriented navigation. What does that mean? asks Eva. It means they're smarter than we think. Eva's father looks up from the label and glances around. Now where has that sister of yours got to? He sets off towards a tank on the far side of the room, where Fiona has been momentarily entranced by schools of tiny, brightly coloured fish darting to and fro like living jewels. If Eva had her way, they would spend every weekend exploring the many wonders of the aquarium, lost in an ethereal submarine world of alien creatures and endless possibility. Nevertheless, the red exit lights soon flicker on, and her father's voice calls to her. Come on, Eva. The aquarium's closing up for the night, and these poor people want to go home. You wouldn't want to get locked inside. Eva is sure that she would, but before she can find a good hiding place, a staff member appears to usher her out. Her father ruffles her hair. Don't worry. We can come back again soon. The undulating waves form smooth humps in the water before rising to angry breakers that charge forth to hiss against the distant shore. To Eva, they seem like an army of great sea mammals pounding their foamy heads against the sand as they wage an eternal war against the land. She shifts on her board as she spies a dark shape near the shore, a surfer washed in on the last wave. It's all about timing, says her father, treading water beside her. Eva manoeuvres herself in the water to face him. You have to learn to read the wave, he says. 
Don't fight the tide. Move with it. Be one with the sea. She laughs. Doubtless her schoolmates would mock her daggy, greeny father if they were here. But now, with only the waves and the gulls for company, the words feel right. Eva shoots a longing glance over her shoulder. Those older and more experienced on their boards are barely visible in the distance, far out to sea, where the larger swells break. Her father smiles. Not for your first lesson, but one day. They are interrupted by the appearance of the surfer from the shore, cutting seal-like through the waves on his way back out to sea. He draws level with them and pauses. Nice wave before, says Eva's father. Thanks, mate, the surfer replies. Just thought I should warn you. We saw a few jellies further out. Not usually a big problem, but get stung and you'll itch like crazy. Thanks. We'll keep a lookout, won't we, Eva? Good, ma'am. The surfer gives father and daughter a wink before paddling away and disappearing through the crest of the next wave. Eva dips her head and pretends to wipe salt from her eyes to cover her grin. She is thrilled, rather than frightened, as she imagines countless jellies floating like gelatinous balloons beneath her. She hopes she'll get to see one. The next hours pass in a haze of anticipation, frustration and eventually elation as Eva manages to ride a small breaker all the way into the shore. As she stands wobbly-legged in the shallows, she spies her father clapping and cheering in the water. She laughs, forgetting to be embarrassed by this display. As the sun begins to sink in the sky and the air grows cooler and the waves larger, Eva's father suggests that it might be time to call it a day. Time to go back to the house where her mother and sister are waiting. Just one more wave, she begs. Please, Dad. To abandon this endless panorama of sea and sky, the roar of surf beneath her board, the salt spray in her face, the rush of adrenaline as she abandons herself to the elements is obscene, unthinkable. Here, with just her father, Eva feels truly herself, in perfect unity with the world around her. She wants this moment to last forever. Her father relents, more than once, apparently also reluctant to leave. Finally, her empty, growling stomach convinces Eva that surfing until nightfall may not be as viable a plan as she hoped. As father and daughter paddle back to shore, Eva is stopped short by a sudden, stinging pang in her left arm. She cries out, then pulls the offending limb from the water and glares at it suspiciously. Yep, it's the jellies, says her father. Must be coming in on the tide. I've got a few small stings myself. If you're so keen on surfing in stinger-infested waters, we'd better get you a full-length steamer. When the initial shock fades, Eva finds herself fascinated by the sting. The way the irritated skin slowly inflames, becoming red and raised. The burning itch resulting from its exposure to cool air as they emerge from the water. Later in the four-wheel drive on the way home, her fingers trace the wavy red line running up the smooth, pale skin from her elbow to her wrist. Something to remember your first surfing trip by, her father says. A souvenir from the jellies. Eva grins. 
totally worth it. The sky is overcast, the atmosphere still and humid, without even a slight breeze blowing in off the sea. To Eva, it feels suffocating. She stares at the thin white scar on her left forearm, as if by concentrating on that familiar mark received on this very beach six years ago, she can hold back the welling tears. Did you hear me, Eva? says her father softly. If I don't survive the operation, I want you to scatter my ashes in the sea. Somewhere calm and scenic, off the promontory, maybe. His voice catches and he falls silent. They stand side by side on the hard, wet sand, white foam occasionally dancing around their toes. Eva ignores a leafy fragment of seaweed that has entangled itself around her ankle, while in the distance the sinking sun stains the sea red. For a moment the only sounds in the entire world are the hissing of the waves and the mournful cries of the gulls wheeling above. I won't have to, Eva says at last. She lifts her face and gazes stubbornly out towards the distant horizon. You won't die. You can't. Saying the words aloud, with the vast watery expanse before her, she can almost believe them. Six months later, Eva stands on the deck of a small fishing boat, impervious to the cool breeze as she watches ash scatter on the ocean's glassy surface. There are people all around her, friends, family, shedding tears and offering sympathy. Yet their faces blur into a single seething mass, and their words seep from her memory quicker than the ash sinks on contact with the water. She has never felt more alone. Eva gazes over the side of the craft. The boat's shadow spares her the glare of reflected sunlight, enabling her to see deep into the fathomless depths below. After a moment, she detects movement within the water. When she strains her eyes, she is sure she can make out soft, pulsating, umbrella-like forms far below. Swarms of jellyfish gently coalescing in the deep. And when she listens, she's almost sure she hears a throbbing pulse emanating from somewhere beneath her feet, a strange humming song coming from the sea itself, trying to reassure her in ways no human words could. Everything will be all right. All hope, all meaning is not lost. Despite it all, she still feels empty, a pretty shell sitting on a collector's shelf long after the living creature has been boiled away. She pulls her thin woolen cardigan closer to her body as the boat's engine roars back to life, signalling the beginning of the long trip back to shore. It's a mild summer morning as Eva's experimental marine biology class huddles on the jetty, eighteen pairs of eyes fixed on the calm water below. Well, says Professor Davis, can't say I've ever seen that before. The sea is awash with colour and movement, a garden of translucent white, pink and orange. Eva's heart 
pounds. There must be thousands of individual jellies down there, dozens of different species, all swarming together. But what about our research project? asks a voice from the crowd. We can't perform a survey from the shore. Eva recognises Lou, one of the brightest students in the class, and her closest rival on the honour roll. A concerned murmur runs through the group. Don't worry, says Professor Davis. You won't be penalised for an unforeseen jelly swarm. Consider this an unscheduled day off. Go grab a coffee or some lunch and enjoy the sunshine. I'll email you all to reschedule early next week. He rubs thoughtfully at his stubble. Although I'd love to stay and study this myself. As the rest of the students collect their gear and head off, Eva stands silent at the end of the pier, hypnotised by the motion of the gelatinous creatures in their unearthly submarine dance, lost in their world. She is so absorbed by the jellies that she doesn't even realise when someone comes up beside her. Not a bad consolation prize, eh, Eva? Startled, she looks up to find Lou standing beside her. He brushes dark hair off his forehead and shields his eyes from the sun as he too looks down at the water. Sorry? Eva's head spins. She feels disoriented, forcibly pulled back into reality like a hooked fish plucked from the sea. Pretty amazing, isn't it? he replies, gesturing to the jellyfish. I'd say worth not getting into the water for. Oh yes, Eva says. Definitely. Concern shadows her classmates' handsome features. Sorry, Lou, it's just this headache. I think I'm coming down with something. It's an unconvincing lie. Eva knows her distraction has much more to do with the eerie undulating song coming from the water, a deep pulsating rhythm that only she can hear. Lou pauses for a moment before deciding to believe her, or at least not to push. He helps her collect her things. What do you think brought them here, he says, as they finally turn from the water and make their way back to shore. Some irregularity of the tide? I'm pretty sure it's not stinger season. Don't know, says Eva. Could be any number of things. Perhaps something to do with climate change? Yet even as they begin to throw theories to and fro, she can't escape the strange certainty that she already has the answer. The jellyfish are there for her. No hurry, they seem to say as she leaves. Take as long as you like. We will wait. Years pass like waves washing against a coast, each eroding away a little of what came before and leaving its own debris. Eva fills her life with Aquaria, each a miniature portal to another world. One evening, as she often does when the day's work is complete, she lingers in her lab to gaze over the myriad tanks that line the walls. Contained within each are countless small fish, anemones, sea stars and various marine invertebrates, a small sampling of the species found on the nearby reef. An aquarium by the door contains a selection of sea grasses, their fronds waving gently in response to the filter's current.
Surrounding her are desks covered in papers, a whiteboard scrawled with notes and diagrams, a wall to which dozens of photos are affixed, each featuring groups of smiling, wetsuit-clad researchers, herself among them. All stand as tributes to her professional success. Despite her youth and the heavy competition, it's Eva who has been chosen to head a team of researchers investigating the impacts of human activity on the reef ecosystem. Key to the project, and essential to secure funding, is evaluating the ecosystem services the reef provides, its benefits to humankind, and the probable consequence of marine ecosystem deterioration. It's important and challenging work Additionally, the position enables Eva to pursue her own side project, a study on the intricacies of jellyfish behaviour. She knows she should feel proud of her achievements and grateful for the opportunities she has been given, and yet she still feels somehow unfulfilled, as if she's missing a vital part of herself, as if she's just playing a role an elaborate pretense, and she is an impostor in her own life. At last her attention is drawn to the jelly tanks. Crowding round her desk like sentinels, they are home to a multitude of jellyfish, some native to the reef and surrounds, others collected from distant places and far-off oceans, all beautiful and fascinating. A familiar sense of calm suffuses her as she watches them, their medusoid bodies pulsating rhythmically as they hover like satellites in space. After so many years, she still finds them intriguing, the way they begin life as polyps, grow into plant-like strobola, and eventually bud off their stalks like tiny alien flowers and are released as miniature adults into the sea. Even stranger are other hydrozoans like the blue bottle, made up of countless individual organisms working together as one creature, a seamless collective. As Eva stands alone in the lab, she can't help envying her venomous subjects their easy unity. Her liaison with the jellyfish has far outlasted most of her human relationships. She finds herself thinking of Lou and their cordial yet inevitable parting. She is disconcerted to realise that although the separation occurred just weeks before, she feels distant and detached from it, as if it was something that happened a long time ago, to someone else. The raw pain has already receded, leaving only a dull ache of loneliness deep in the pit of her stomach. Residue of a loss that was expected, anticipated and prepared for, the wound half-healed before the injury. In the end, things always play out the same way. A suffocating sense of vulnerability whenever someone gets too close, tries to break through her outer shell. She closes up tight as a scallop and draws away, as distant and cold as the tide. Eva prefers to keep people confined to the shallows, where both of them are safe. A soft whisper penetrates her melancholy, gone before she can catch the words. She turns, scanning the room for unanticipated company, but finds no one. She is alone in the lab. 
Then again she hears it, behind her now, coming from the direction of the jelly tanks. This time it persists, a gentle hum, slowly rising in tone and words, barely discernible at first, gaining clarity the longer she listens, barely daring to breathe in case the spell breaks. Rest, you must rest. It is a strangely familiar delusion. Eva wonders what people would think if they knew. Would the university continue to fund her project if they ever came to suspect she could hear the jellies talking, singing? No, it will be okay. She's just been spreading herself a bit thin, burning the candle at both ends. She is exhausted after all, has not slept properly in a week. Is it really that surprising that she'd lapse into half-dreams? Eva begins to pack up. She should have clocked off hours ago, and her co-workers might worry if they knew she was here so late again. With one last glance at the jelly tanks, she switches off the lights and leaves. The hour is closer to dawn than dusk, as Eva sits bent over her desk, sipping lukewarm coffee and hammering out a few final sentences on her keyboard. The cool morning air creeps under the door to tickle the hairs on her arms in defiance of her small electric heater. She should have gone to bed hours ago, but restfulness eludes her. Always just one more paragraph. The paper must be ready for presentation on Monday, and she refuses to stop until it's perfect. The State Environment Minister will be attending the conference, and Eva's team's ecosystem evaluation indicates that large sections of reef must be protected to prevent ecosystem collapse. Over three years' work depends on this paper, and she won't let them be wasted. Besides, there is no one to chastise her for late nights. Fatigue finally sets in as she snaps her laptop shut. In a drowsy haze, she makes her way to the adjacent room and collapses onto her cold, empty bed. As she waits for sleep to overcome her, Eva stares at the large marine aquarium set against the opposite wall. Despite the dozens of tanks full of sea life back at the lab, and even one or two in the house to examine after hours, this is the only tank she keeps purely for pleasure. Contained within are a number of sea urchins, sea stars, and a single specimen of a species of small local jellyfish. As her mind wanders, she finds herself dwelling on Turriptopsis dornii, the so-called immortal jellyfish, a tiny hydrozoan capable of reverting back to its juvenile form after adulthood and regenerating. If I could go back, Eva murmurs. Consciousness ebbs away as she loses herself in thoughts of leaving it all and returning to a simpler, happier time. That night, Eva dreams of jellyfish. She floats in a sea of nothingness as they drift around her, thousands of them, millions perhaps, extending to the very limits of her vision. Their pulsing song envelops her, reverberates through her very being, until it becomes a part of her. 
Or perhaps it's she who has become a part of the song, just another note in an endless orchestra. As time passes, the music seems less alien, until with sudden clarity she realises she understands the song. Though she hears nothing definable as words, the message she receives is clear. You are unhappy? You feel isolated, alone, like you do not belong? Eva knows this is true, but the jellies don't appear to want or need an answer. You try, but still you feel helpless? Another unwelcome truth. Maybe you do not belong with them. You belong with us, as do all the dreamers who came before. Eva scans the sea of transparent bodies, all pulsating in time like one immense organism. We were here long before your species came, and we will remain long after they are gone. They are the dream, and we the reality. We merely wait for those who will wake. We are one, and we do not forget. Do not lose hope. Eva reaches out to touch the nearest drifting Medusa. Upon contact she feels her consciousness expand, rush out exponentially to encompass the entire ocean. She is part of every wave, every ripple, each individual organism making up the great web of aquatic life, their triumphs, fears and their hungers. She floats weightless in strange, detached calm. No matter what comes, life will persist in some form. It is for the benefit of those currently living that she must share her message. It's up to them to heed it. All this she sees and feels with astounding clarity. Yet one thing remains obscured. Deep in the unfathomable depths lurks a great presence. Her mind can comprehend it only as a great jellyfish larger than an island sleeping below the waves in a place of impenetrable darkness. Despite its slumber, the creature's synapses are afire, processing a multitude of information, the experiences of each and every of its children, and all they encounter, stored within until they are once again needed. When Eva awakes, the salty, crisp scent of the sea lingers amidst her bedsheets. Although the dream is unsettling, Eva attempts to forget it through deeper immersion in her work. There's little left to do apart from some final edits on her paper, however, and she finds her thoughts returning again and again to worry about the vision's significance. Perhaps she should talk to someone. Stress, sleeplessness, and old dreams returning, it can't be healthy. But who to tell? Her colleagues, who might lose respect for her? Her sister? who already has enough on her plate with three kids and a demanding job. Her mother, who after years of lonely stoicism is now travelling the world with her new partner. Lou. It is only when Eva lies in bed the night before the conference that such thoughts are replaced by nervousness for her presentation. Not even the humming song from the tank against the wall can reassure her. 
it doesn't really matter how tomorrow goes, your message will eventually prevail. Eva still feels like she's drowning. The lecture theatre for Eva's presentation is empty of almost anyone but familiar faces. Research scientists, academics and other colleagues acquire of the converted for Eva to preach to. Her team's data is indisputable, their recommendations well supported, and Eva delivers them with no lack of oratory skill. But this means little if the right people do not listen. The Environment Minister doesn't even bother to turn up to the conference. The memo sent by his office cites a multitude of competing responsibilities to the taxpayers as the perfunctory excuse for his absence. Despite her colleagues' reassurances that her paper was flawless, and some interest in publishing it as a feature expressed by the editor of a prominent ecology journal, Eva is sure it doesn't matter. Barely anyone new will read it. No one will do anything about it. She returns home in a haze of despair, stumbles through the doorway and slumps at the kitchen table head in hands. She stays that way for what feels like an age, then bolts suddenly upright, resolute and driven by a new sense of purpose. Briefly, she wonders if she might be mad, then decides it doesn't matter if she is. Eva grabs the keys off the table and makes for the carport, only to pause just outside the door. Wait, you have forgotten. She returns inside and heads straight for the aquarium in her bedroom. Eva retrieves a net and a sample bag from the cabinet beneath, then scoops the waiting jellyfish from the water, gently manoeuvring the creature into the bag for transport. Driving with the bag safely contained in an esky on the passenger seat, the voices are silent, asking no more of her. At the promontory, she shuts off the engine and jumps out of the vehicle, taking the jellyfish with her as she traverses the sandy slope to the beach. It's early evening, the sky tinged pink. Casting her shoes carelessly aside, Eva approaches the tidal zone, where a shelf of exposed rock juts out into the deep water. She lets the jellyfish bag float in a rock pool, while she rests against a boulder and watches the final sinking of the sun. All the while, her fingers trace the scar on her left arm, up and down, up and down. Eva feels no surprise as the familiar song envelops her. She lowers her gaze to an ocean teeming with jellyfish, vibrant despite the fading light. Don't fight the tide, move with it. Eva retrieves her jellyfish bag from the pool and makes her way to the water. There she unties the mouth and releases the delicate creature into the ocean. She watches it gradually drift away to join the thousands of others from countless different species all converging on this one place. For her, of course. Always for her. Carefully she undresses. Her clothes so meticulously chosen that morning, she leaves in a crumpled pile on the rocks. She wades into the cool, calm water, guided by thousands of familiar voices becoming one with the great aquatic consciousness.
slowly, Eva sinks into the jelly's embrace. Home at last. And welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the story. I spent a lot of time at the beach as a kid, and there's something magical about learning to read the waves. I love the way Michelle's story captures this and the wonders of the aquatic world. For some people, the ocean is a place of unknown lurking terrors. But assuming there's a good internet connection, I'd be happy to live underwater. Michelle had this to say about the story. This piece was one of the stories I completed during a mentorship with Karen Warren. It means a lot to me as the early scenes involving Eva and her father are inspired by my own childhood relationship with my late father. I wanted to mix speculative elements with real-world biology, ecological themes, and an exploration of how the loss of a loved one early in life can shape someone. Now let's go to the episode feedback. And now... It's that time again. That's right. Feedback from our forums. This is co-editor Jen Albert with feedback today for episode 429, Wolfy Things, by Aaron Roberts. Everyone who commented on this story was a fan, complimenting the excellent use of the unreliable narrator and the fantastic voice of the story. Trish E.M. said, This was a wonderful story, so well told and so sad. Although the protagonist didn't realize it. It was so agonizing for the listener, his not realizing how bad a friend Lee was for him, and his seeing that his mother was sad, and drawing exactly the wrong conclusions from it, and the wolf's elliptical conversations that he totally misinterpreted. I'm really impressed by how the author presented the contrasts in how he saw everything versus allowing us to see beyond his limitations. I don't exactly want a sequel, since the story really stands perfectly on its own, but I'd certainly love to see more stories set in this world, or more stories in general from Aaron Roberts. Callison was a fan of the voice in the story, and had visited Aaron's personal page reading up on her writing process. This commenter said, I found the use of vernacular particularly impressive and wonderful to both hear and read. How people structure language and then use that structure to define their world is one of the fun parts of world building, and it's clear you had a blast with it. Unblinking said, Ooh, I love a good unreliable narrator story, and this one had it in spades. In particular, his interpretations of his mother's reaction that he describes as fear, but which is clearly longing, patting one's hair as if there's bugs in it, rather than tidying one's hair to be sure you're presentable for a suitor. I wonder if he'll ever realize that that's his dad, or if he'll just lock that away. Thanks everyone for commenting on this story. If you have any comments on any of our stories, please visit forum.escapeartist.net and let us know what you thought. And now back to you, Aiden. Thank you for those comments. Stop on by and let us know what you thought of today's story. While you're there, consider making a donation. Every single cent goes toward paying our authors, so we can keep bringing you the best fantasy fiction week after week. And if you can't donate, consider blogging or tweeting about us and spreading the word. That was our show for this week. On behalf of everyone at Podcastle, thanks for letting us share another story with you. We'll be back next week with another. Until then, this is Aidan Doyle reminding you to explore the vastness. Our closing quote comes from Haruki Murakami's The Wind-Up Bird Chronicle. 
The real world is in a much deeper and darker place than this, and most of it is occupied by jellyfish and things. We just happen to forget all that. Don't you agree? Two thirds of Earth's surface is ocean, and all we can see with the naked eye is the surface. The skin. 2016 marks Pseudopod's 10th Halloween. It's a dead man's party and we have a lot of reasons to celebrate with you. Just about this time in 2013, we were weeks from shutting our doors and turning the lights off. Thanks to our donors and subscribers, we not only survived, but grew. While we have always paid our authors, over the last two years we have raised our pay for original fiction to professional rates. Now we're asking listeners like you to help chip in so we can compensate all our content creators. We want you to have a stake in the world's longest-running horror fiction podcast. As part of this campaign, we're going to be raising the capital to pay our narrators for a number of years. Since the primary mission at Pseudopod is the promotion and preservation of the short horror fiction format, we want to assemble a companion anthology to celebrate what we've done over the last decade. This includes reprints of stories we've run as episodes of Pseudopod, as well as some original fiction from authors we've run a number of times. We are also working with the fine folks at Horror and Clay to produce a tiki mug that celebrates a decade with Pseudopod. Links will be in the show notes.